We invite your attention to John's Gospel account, chapter 2. And I want us to look at verses 13 through 22. Let me read it uh, in its entirety, and then we'll get into the actual study. When the Passover feast, celebrated each spring by the Jews, was about to take place, Jesus traveled up to Jerusalem. He found the temple teeming with people selling cattle and sheep and doves. The loan sharks were also there in full strength. Jesus put together a whip out of strips of leather and chased them out of the temple, stampeding the sheep and cattle, upending the tables of the loan sharks, spilling coins left and right. He told the dove merchants, get your things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a shopping mall. That's when his disciples remembered the scripture, zeal for your house consumes me. But the Jews were upset. They asked, what credentials can you present to justify this? Jesus answered, tear down this temple, and in three days, I'll put it back together. They were indignant. It took 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to rebuild it in three days? But Jesus was talking about his body as the temple. Later, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this. They then put two and two together and believed both what was written in scripture and what Jesus had said. Again, uh, the theme of Lent that we want to lift up uh, in this Bible study is reverence. Uh, we said at the noon Bible study uh, that someone might ask, what does service, and in this case, what does reverence have to do with Lent? Lent is that time set aside uh, for us to soberly consider the sacrificial death, burial, and triumphant resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it means for all of us. Uh, we are the beneficiaries of what Christ did for us. But more than the beneficiaries, uh, direct beneficiaries of Jesus's salvation, we are also given model behavior of how we should conduct our lives. We're giving model attitudes of how we should think and the things that should consume us. And one of the things that consumed Jesus is reverence for God as it is revealed through reverence for the temple. Now, it's important that you understand that before Pentecost, the, 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 the Holy Spirit was not pervasive. The Holy Spirit's presence was not available to any and every believer. That is not the case with us now. Because of Pentecost, because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, because of the promise that Jesus made on the night before he was crucified, that he would send a comforter to be with us forever. All of us have the Holy Spirit available to us. Every Christian, every person who accepts Jesus Christ, when you accept Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our lives, which means that we have God with us at all times. The Apostle Paul says, uh, don't you understand that your body is the temple of the Lord? And, and that's a 
fully appropriate statement because the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit means that God is with us. And that makes our bodies living temples of God. But prior to Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was not pervasive. The Holy Spirit was not available to everyone. And the presence of God was recognized as being in the temple. So when we're talking about Jesus's reverence for the temple, we're not talking about his reverence for brick and mortar and wood and stone. We're talking about his reverence for what the temple represented. The temple represents the abode of God. Go back to Second Chronicles chapter 7. Uh, after Solomon had built the temple, and Solomon built the first temple. In point of fact, uh, what we're dealing with here is the second temple, also known as Herod's temple. But in Second Chronicles chapter 7, after Solomon built and dedicated the temple to God, following God's specific instruction on how the temple was to be built, what materials were to be used, and exactly what quantities and exactly what measures were to be applied. After he did this and after he prayed and dedicated the temple to God, God appears to Solomon in a dream and, and God speaks to Solomon. Now, the part that all of us remember is where he says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal the land. And that's an important thing to remember. But before he said all of that, what he says to Solomon is, I'm pleased with what you have done. I'm pleased with, with, with this building that you have built. And I have made it my decision that I will dwell in this place, that you will come here in order to engage in relationship with me. As it was in the first temple, so it was with the second temple. The first temple was destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar uh, the king of Babylon came through uh, Judah and tore the temple apart, tore the entire city of Jerusalem apart. And, and the, the, the description of the destruction of the temple was uh, so uh, explicit that it says that not one stone remained on top of the other. The temple was utterly destroyed, which was symbolic of the removal God's removal of his presence from his people because Judah's sin had become so great God removed his presence and and the destruction of the of the temple was symbolic of not the destruction of a building but the removal of God's presence with the rebuilding of the second temple and that's what most of the writing of the minor prophets is about the rebuilding of the second temple with the rebuilding of the temple, God again placed his presence within the temple. I'm saying all of this. I'm, I'm giving you a brief Old Testament history lesson because I want you to understand when we're talking about reverence as it relates to Lent and as it relates to the attitude of Jesus, we're not talking about reverence for a building. We're talking about reverence for the presence of God. Because that's what the temple represented. The second temple was the abode of God. And Jesus saw it as just that. He had tremendous reverence for the temple because it was the presence of 
God. When, when he was 12 years old, his, his parents took him up to Jerusalem for uh, the sacrifices for, for, for Passover. And when they were leaving and heading back north to Galilee, Jesus remained behind. And it was a couple of days before they realized that Jesus wasn't with their caravan. They turn around, they head back to Jerusalem. They go to the temple and there Jesus is in the temple discussing God with the elders of the temple, amazing them with his insight and with his knowledge. And his mother grabs him like any mother would grab any child. And the scripture doesn't say it like this, but, it, but if it was my mama, she would have grabbed me and shook me and said, what the devil are you doing here? Maybe she would have said, what the heaven are you doing here? But, 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 but she would have been very upset that I was here. But Jesus's response was, where else was I supposed to be? Don't you know that I must be about my father's business? That's what the temple represented to him. It represented the presence of the father. So when we read in John chapter 2 about Jesus' clearing of the temple, what we have to understand is the motivation behind what he was doing. And that is he saw the temple being desecrated by the activities of religious people within the temple. Now, if you were in here and you had uh, uh, the ability to read my notes, there's a whole section in my notes about whether or not uh, this telling of the temple cleansing is simply John's version of what is also told in the synoptic gospel accounts where Jesus cleanses the temple. But uh, this cleansing of the temple takes place early in his ministry. It's in John chapter 2, whereas the other accounts of the cleansing are near the end of, in fact, it's what leads up into Holy Week. It, it, It happened on the same day of what we commonly call Palm Sunday. And there's a question as to whether or not there were two temple clearings or one. If you had my notes, I'd say to you right about now, read the notes, make up your mind. As my uh, professor, Dr. Holcomb used to say, pay your money and take your choice. For me, it's not as important whether or not there was one cleansing or one clearing or two. The main point for us has to do with the motivation behind what Jesus is doing. And again, it's important that we understand that for Jesus, the temple represents the presence of God. So if you desecrate the temple, you are desecrating the presence of God. And again, this desecration was done by religious people. When the Passover feast, celebrated each spring by the Jews, was about to take place, Jesus traveled up to Jerusalem. He found the temple teeming with people, selling cattle and sheep and doves. And the loan sharks were also there in full strength. Now, let's understand the picture. Why? Are people selling cattle and sheep and doves in God's temple? That's a good question. The answer is so that the people would 
the people who were coming up for the Passover feast would be able to make appropriate sacrifices. In the ancient Hebrew uh, religion, in, in ancient Hebrew scripture, we're given instruction by God through Moses as to how sacrifices were to be offered to God. And various sacrifices required uh, the, the, the slaughter of certain animals by the priests who would then burn them on the altar uh, in order to atone for the sins of the people. Uh, usually it involved uh, an ox or a bull or, or some form of cattle. For those who uh, did not have the wherewithal, did not have uh, the money to purchase cattle or did not own cattle, uh, accommodations were made. If you, if you didn't have cattle, you could offer up a sheep. If you were too poor to have a sheep, you could offer up a bird. You could offer up a dove. Here's the key. Regardless of whether or not it was uh, cattle, or whether or not it was sheep, whether or not it was a dove, uh, the, the animal that was being sacrificed had to be pure. And pure, by their measure, meant that it had to be without spot or blemish. And if the animal was without spot or blemish, then it was worthy of being made a sacrifice to God. If it had spot or blemish, then it was considered to be inferior and unworthy, and you could not offer it up as a sacrifice to God. Now, let's look at the economics of this. Clearly, the cattle, the sheep, even the birds that were without spot or blemish, that, 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 that were all uh, monocolored, uh, were, were of greater value because of the religious uh, aspect of it, were of greater value than those that had spots or blemishes. And so what some people were doing, what, what some in the religious community were doing, was they were hiding the truly pure cattle, the truly pure sheep, the truly pure Doves, they were hiding them, they were concealing them, and they were putting forth inferior animals to be sacrificed. Well, how did they get away with it? Because they camouflaged the, 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 the inferior spots. They, they, they removed them, they bleached the animals, they painted the animals, they did something to give the animals the appearance of being pure, of being without spot of being without blemish, when in point of fact, they had spots and blemishes. More than that, it was a regular practice for these animals to be sold at superior prices. We're going through a pandemic right now where, where goods are scarce in many cases. I was reading on Facebook just today that there is a market here in town, a supermarket here in town, that's selling a dozen eggs for $5.99. Why? Because right now there's a shortage on eggs. And, and, and never forget that there's somebody out there trying to make a profit on any calamity. 
Terrence Turner, who, who, who's up there uh, recording me right now, uh, is fond of saying, ne never let a catastrophe go by without uh, uh, getting something from it. And I know I'm not saying it right, Terrence, but, but I got the idea across. Ne never let a good calamity pass you by. That's the, 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 the system of the world. Watching uh, Governor Cuomo, Governor Andrew Cuomo on the air talking about how the makers of ventilators are jacking up their prices because the supply is low and the demand is great. And, and, and he says it's ridiculous that 50 different governors, 50 different states are competing with one another for ventilators in order uh, to treat sick and dying people, not to mention the federal government through FEMA, which is also competing for these ventilators. And the prices are being jacked up by the competition. People always find a way to make a profit out of catastrophe. In the case of, uh, of the temple, uh, the religious leadership and we don't know whether the religious leadership here is Pharisees or Sadducees or members of the Sanhedrin Council. Pharisees and Sadducees were two different sects, S-E-C-T-S, I always have a problem saying that word, uh, were, were, were two different sects of Judaism. The Sanhedrin Council was the governing body of uh, Jewish civic and religious affairs, and it was comprised of both Pharisees and Sadducees, as well as Essenes and, and other sects of Judaism. More than likely, it was uh, representatives of the Sanhedrin Council that were doing this selling. But they weren't selling the real product. They were hiding the real product. And they were jacking up the price on the inferior product that they were selling. So Jesus sees this going on in God's temple by representatives of God in a religious system. And it offends him. More than that, he says he also saw the loan sharks that were there. That, that's, that's the way Peterson translates it in the message version. Other versions call it the money changes. But, but I like the term loan sharks because that's what they were doing. What, 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 what's this exchange of money all about? Well, here's the interesting thing about the temple, and I know that this was the Sanhedrin Council. Temple money was only good at the temple. Remember, Israel was an occupied state at that time, and uh, the currency uh, for that state everywhere else but in the temple was Roman money. Roman money was, 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 was the currency of exchange for the purchase of goods and services and livestock and fields and food and everything else. But when it came to offering sacrifices to God, the, the, the leadership of the temple, the Sanhedrin council, said, no, you, you can't offer uh, that, that Roman money to our God. You got to offer 
temple money. You got to offer Hebrew money. You, you, you have to offer money that has been sacrificed to God. Now, here's what we'll do. You come to us. You bring us your Roman money and we'll exchange it for you with temple money so that you can offer your sacrifice. Now, if temple money only has value at the temple and Roman money has value everywhere else, then when you make the exchange, you're actually enriching yourself. The money changers were getting rich because they could take that Roman money and they can go anywhere with it, whereas the temple money could only be spent at the temple. You ever play Monopoly? Monopoly money ain't good nowhere but, in, <laughs> but playing Monopoly. You can't go to the supermarket with Monopoly money and, and, and think that you're going to get anything from it except being laughed at. Well, they were taking people's hard-earned money, their coins, and, and, and they were exchanging for that temple money to be used in the sacrifice. Now, if that ain't bad enough, because nobody, nowhere d d does the law say that you could only offer sacrifices with temple money, because when the law was written, there was no temple. So, 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 so this was somebody's made-up rule. If that wasn't bad enough, they were charging you interest on the exchange. So that if I came to you looking for, just to use uh, uh, common terminology, something we can understand. If I, if I came to you looking for $10 of temple money and I had Roman money that I was going to give you, I couldn't get $10 of temple money with $10 of Roman money. I would have to pay you the $10 in Roman money plus a fee before you'd give me the $10 of temple money. So $10 of temple money might cost me $15. Where did the profit go? Into the pockets of the ones who are making the exchange. Thus, Peterson calls them loan sharks. We know about loan sharks, don't we? Where you borrow $300 and pay back $30,000? We... We know what loan sharks are about. Here's the problem. All of this was being done in the house of God by people who claimed to be the representatives of God. My brothers and sisters, we always have to be on guard against evil systems. There are systems in place in the world that we always have to be cautious of. We have to be cautious of economic systems. We have to be cautious of governmental systems. We have to be cautious of social systems. But we also have to be cautious of religious systems. A religious system is no better than a governmental system. A religious system is no better than a business system because systems are designed to feed the system. Systems are designed to perpetuate the system, not to honor the one that the system is named for. The Sanhedrin Council, Pharisees and Sadducees, said that they represented 
God. But in their religious system, it became clear that they were really only representing themselves. If they truly represented God and people came in need of uh, livestock in order to make sacrifices, why would they sell them to them instead of just giving them to them? If they really represented God and, and, and they decided that you had to make uh, your sacrifice with temple money, why wouldn't you just give an even exchange? $10 of Roman money gets $10 of temple money. Why was there a profit on top of that? Well, well you know how, how it goes. We, we call it a shipping and handling fee. We... we we, we, we call it uh, a maintenance fee. You, you know that when you buy something, uh, you always have to pay a little bit more than the actual value of the item because that's what world systems do. And here's my point to, 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 to you. Religious systems are no different than world systems unless God is the one who's in charge. And Jesus is offended because he knows that while they're doing this in the name of God, while they're doing this in the place set aside for the worship of God, Jesus knows that God has nothing to do with what's going on. If we have true reverence for God, then we should not want to be a part of anything that does not have God at the head. We should not feel uh, any need to conform to anything where God is not at the head. I understand that we have a need for civil authority, we have a need for civic government, we have a need for law enforcement, and as much as we possibly can, we should adhere to the rules, to the tenets, to the laws that civic authority put into place. Uh, but where civic authority crosses divine authority, where civic authority uh, uh, says the opposite of what divine authority says. What civic authority demeans and diminishes divine authority. Our obligation as Christians is to affirm God, not affirm the system. When Rosa Parks sat in on that bus and refused to give up her seat to a white man, Rosa Parks was breaking the civil law of her community. But she was actually affirming the divine law that says God is no respecter of persons. More often than not, we are challenged in our faith as to whose law we're going to affirm, as to whose word we're going to adhere to as to who is going to have preeminence in our lives. And for the Christian, the answer has to always be God. Where God is not in charge, chaos is going to ensue. And that's what Jesus saw. Now, now perhaps nobody else who was participating in this saw chaos. 
But it's not because chaos didn't exist. It's because they got so used to the chaos that it didn't register in their minds as being chaos. Let that sink in for a second. Sometimes you can get so used to something. You can see it with such frequency, with such regularity. You can experience it with, 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 with such frequency that you fail to recognize what it really is. I tell people all the time that uh, for, for a long time I, I, I lived uh, in the city of New Orleans, three years down there in seminary, six years pastoring a church down there. New Orleans is very different from Baton Rouge. I love the people of New Orleans, but New Orleans was a very different environment from Baton Rouge. And, and here's the thing, nine years in New Orleans, for a while, I stopped seeing the differences between New Orleans and Baton Rouge. And, and, and what was abnormal to me about New Orleans, because I was exposed to it on a daily basis, started to take on an air of normalcy. And then when I was called back here to, to Baton Rouge to serve a church here in 1992, it, it, it was some time before I had to go back down to New Orleans. But when I drove back into the city after having been away from it for a, a period of time, it looked different than it did before. And, and my feelings about what I saw were very different from what they were before. Whereas it had been normal to me because I was in it every day. Now going back into it after having been removed from it, it took on a whole different air. It, 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 it struck me in an entirely different way. My point is this. If you are in chaos and you don't see chaos as chaos, it's because you're used to it. It's because you, you have become such a part of the chaos that no longer does the chaos have an impact on you. So Jesus saw what was going on at the temple very differently from the others who were there. They were going on about their business. Nobody was questioning why uh, the cattle looked funny, supposed to be unspotted. But it looked funny. Nobody was questioning why they had to pay such an exorbitant fee to get temple money in order to offer the sacrifices. They had become accustomed to the system. But Jesus was attuned not to the system, but to God. And because he was attuned to God, what he saw was absolute chaos. And it was a chaos that he could not affirm. It was a chaos that he could not abide by. It was a chaos that offended him and offended his attitude of reverence for God and for the place where God had chosen to place his spirit in the temple. So what does he do in response? Verse 15. Jesus put together a whip out of strips of leather and chased them out of the temple, stampeding the sheep and cattle upending the tables of the loan sharks, spilling coins left and right. He told the dove merchants, get your things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a shopping mall. 
That's when his disciples remembered the scripture, zeal for your house consumes me. A couple things I want you to see here. The scripture says that when Jesus saw what he saw, it was so offensive to him that he put together a whip out of strips of leather. He chased the people out of the temple. He stampeded the sheep and the cattle. He overturned the tables of the loan sharks. He told the dove merchants to get your product out of here and stop turning my father's house into a shopping mall. Question, what were the disciples doing? Answer, watching Jesus do. If, if, if you don't read the last part of verse 17, you wouldn't even know that the disciples were there. The last part says, that's when his disciples remembered the scripture. So then the disciples were there. The disciples were present with Jesus. The disciples saw everything that Jesus saw. The disciples saw how Jesus responded to everything. But you know what the disciples didn't do? They didn't help Jesus clear the temple. They didn't move with the same sort of zeal that Jesus showed. They observed, they saw, they witnessed, but they did not participate. Now, I want to suggest that it is an indictment upon our reverence for God when we see chaotic activity taking place and we don't share in the removal of that chaos. The disciples were with Jesus. They witnessed what Jesus witnessed. They saw what Jesus saw, but they did not respond as Jesus responded. They did not even Respond after Jesus responded. Nowhere does John say, and we helped. He says, Jesus did all this. And then it says, the disciples remembered after he did it. It reminds us, don't ever expect other folk to help you do what God has called you to do. Even well-intentioned folk Will often leave you out there to fend for yourself. If you're waiting on others to help you do what's right before you do what's right, right will never get done. Sometimes we have to take matters into our own hands and we have to move as we are prompted by the Spirit even if we have to do it all by ourselves. Jesus was motivated to remove the offensive behavior of the religious system from God's sanctuary. And he did it by himself. The disciples who were with him 
did not help him. The flip side of that is equally important. Jesus didn't ask him to help either. Not only do the disciples not join in, but you don't read anywhere where Jesus said, y'all going to help me. I'm always amused by preachers who say, y'all going to help me. I'm teaching right now in an, in an empty sanctuary, so I ain't got nobody here to help me. So I can't say y'all going to help me. But even if, even if it wasn't empty, I wouldn't be saying y'all going to help me because if I'm right, I don't need no help. I can be right all by myself. Jesus wasn't looking for nobody to help him. Jesus knew what was right and he was willing to do it. He was willing to suffer the sacrifice for doing what he did. What he wasn't going to do was allow wrong to continue in his presence where he did nothing about it. If we have true reverence for God, not only should we not wait for others to join us, we should not need others to join us. I shall not, I shall not be moved. Just like a tree planted by the water, I shall not be moved. I am not going to comply with wrong. I am not going to wait for others to see the wrong that I see. When I see the wrong, I'm going to respond to the wrong. And I don't care if anybody helps me or not. I'm going to do it because the Lord has told me to do so. Jesus ran the money changers out, the loan sharks out. Jesus ran the dove merchants out and the sheep merchants out and the cattle merchants out because he said that they were desecrating the house of the Lord and he did it all by himself. When we have reverence for God, we will stand for God even if we have to do it alone. Well, what happens after that? Verse 18. But the Jews were upset. They asked, what credentials can you present to justify this? Understand the question. When they asked what credentials, what they were saying was, who qualifies you to do what you're doing? By what authority? Are you doing what you're doing? Understand that, that, that most of these men, Pharisees, Sadducees, the, the members of the Sanhedrin Council, they were considered to be learned men. They sat under somebody's teaching. They gathered with one another and they held regular discussions about the, the, the positions and the activities that took place under this system. And they had the authority to do what they were doing, they said from God, but on a more earthly plateau, they had the authority from the Roman government. The Roman government was not interested in the worship of the true and the living God. The Roman government was interested, however, in maintaining peace within the various provinces that Rome controlled. That's where the Sanhedrin Council got their power in the first place. 
The Roman government said, we'll leave you in place. We'll leave you in authority. We'll leave you in control. All we want is for you to make sure that there is peace within the province, that nobody upsets or disturbs the peace. And so the Sanhedrin Council would claim that they had two different levels of authority. They had the authority of God because they represented the religious system of Judaism, but they also had the authority of the Roman government. And so when they asked Jesus, where are your credentials? They're asking, by whose authority are you doing this? Who gives you the right? Show me papers that let us know that you've been authorized to do what you are doing. There's always going to be somebody who's waiting for you to show them papers. There are always going to be people who system people only respond to other systems. And so the question that they were asking is, which system are you a part of that allows you to do this? And Jesus's response is beautiful. He doesn't respond to it at all directly. He doesn't say, I'm doing this in the name of the living God. He doesn't say, I don't have papers like you have, but I've been in prayer and God told me. To. He doesn't do any of that. He ignores the question. And he responds by saying, tear down this temple. And in three days, I'll put it back together. Now, somebody will say, well, isn't it somewhat impertinent? That, that, that Jesus would not respond to that question with a direct answer, it, it leaves us hanging because he, he doesn't say that he does this in the name of the living God. Well, here, here's my thinking on that. Jesus doesn't respond to their question about credentials because Jesus doesn't respect the credentials that they have. And so, as far as he's concerned, you ain't got no business asking the question, no, huh? I, I don't have to answer to you. I don't, you. You're asking for my credentials. I'm showing you by my answer. I have no respect for your credentials. First of all, you're liars. You're saying that you represent God. Well, I am God. In the beginning was the word. That, that, that's how John 1 opens up. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus didn't recognize them as being from God because Jesus was God. So first of all, your, your top level credential is a lie. And then second... Because your top-level credential does not exist, I don't need to worry about your credential from the Roman government because I answer to a higher power than the Roman government. I answer to a higher power than a governmental system. My reverence is not for the emperor of Rome. My reverence is for the true and the living God. When the church has reverence for God, then the church will put the things of God ahead of the systems of this world.
Now, let me be clear. I understand that the church must operate within the framework of human systems. The church must operate within economic systems. I say all the time that ministry can't be done in, 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 in this America unless we operate within the framework of an economic system of capitalism. Capitalism is in every way, shape, and form evil and demonic and not of God, but it is the economic framework of this nation. And so for the church to operate, we have to take that which is evil and use it for good. We have to operate within that framework. But operating within that framework does not mean that we give precedence to the framework. We use it because it needs to be used. But we never give it a place of priority over our relationship with God. That's why Jesus also says that no man can serve God and money. You can't have two masters. You either love the one and hate the other, or you'll cling to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. Money can be used. Money must be used in order for ministry to be done, but using money ain't the same as worshiping money. The people of this religious system were worshiping money. That's why they were hiding and confiscating uh, uh, pure livestock keeping it and selling it on the black market to make a profit while they're also making an unfair profit selling an inferior product to the people who didn't know any better or couldn't do any better. That's why they were charging exorbitant interest rates and taxes on money that they were exchanging, enriching themselves, not because they loved God, but because they loved money. They had placed money and the monetary system of Rome in a place of higher priority than God. And Jesus says, I don't recognize your authority. I don't recognize your credentials. I know who I am. I know whose I am. I know where I came from. I don't even need to answer your question. I am going to give you an answer. I am going to respond. But my response has nothing to do with the question that you've asked. You ask, where are your credentials? My response is, tear down this temple. And in three days. I'll raise it back up again. Sometimes the church has to lift its vision and its focus away from the things of the world. You don't have to answer everything that's hurled at us, every accusation that's hurled at us, every criticism that's hurled at us, every requirement that systems give to us. I don't answer to world systems. I recognize them. I learn how to operate within the framework of them, but I don't recognize, I, I don't acknowledge them as having a place of priority in my life. My priority is the worship of God. And so Jesus uses this moment to tell them, to give them a response not to what they asked, but to what they need to know. They asked, by what credentials are you running these folk out of here? By what credentials are you cutting into our profit margin? Jesus says, forget about that. You're asking the wrong question. Let me answer the question that you're not asking. Tear down this temple. And in three days, 
it will be raised up again. Even in his answer, the Jews that, to whom he was speaking didn't understand what he was talking about. Listen to how they respond. They were indignant. It took 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to rebuild it in three days? They decided they were going to give Jesus this ignorant Yankee from uh, the northern part of uh, the province a history lesson. In case you didn't know, it took our ancestors 46 years uh, to build this temple. Interesting thing about that is that it shouldn't have taken 46 years to build. It took 46 years because your ancestors were lazy and trifling and more concerned about themselves than they were about doing the will of God. If you read your ancient Hebrew scripture, that becomes abundantly clear. Their point to Jesus was, it's ridiculous for you to suggest that something that took 46 years to build can be rebuilt in three days. But in their response, they showed that they were thinking on a human plane, whereas Jesus was talking to them on a spiritual plane. They were thinking about the physical building, the complex, the, 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 the buildings, because if you ever looked at a map of the temple, it wasn't just one building. It was a complex of buildings, all surrounded by a very high and powerful gate. Uh, and they were saying, there's no way on earth that you can tear this down and build it back in three days. And, and, and what they failed to understand is that Jesus wasn't talking about a physical temple. He wasn't talking about the buildings. He wasn't talking about the complex of the buildings. He was talking about the true abode of God. Remember what we said when we started. At the time that this takes place, uh, the Holy Spirit had not been given to all believers. That happened at Pentecost. And post-Pentecost, Paul says that all of us, all of our bodies are the temple of God. God resides within all of us. Well, for Jesus, it didn't take Pentecost for God to reside in him. For Jesus, God was already residing in him. So when Jesus says, tear down this temple, he wasn't talking about the building. He wasn't talking about the complex of buildings. He was talking about his own body. He was talking about the fact that within his person, the Holy Spirit of God made his dwelling. More than that, he tells them, you don't understand what's going to happen to this temple. It's going to be torn down. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to be taken apart. It's going to be put to death. This temple will be torn asunder. But it does not matter because the power of God is able to take that which was destroyed and put it back together again. Let me leave you with that because I've got about four minutes left. Let, let me leave you with, with that thought. That that which others have destroyed, God has the power to bring back together. We're living in a nation 
where many people are fearful of those who sit in seats of authority and, 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 and they say things like, he's ruining this nation. He's destroying this country. We're never going to be the same again. Well, here's my thing. First of all, you weren't all that to begin with. If you think that Donald Trump is the be-all, end-all of evil and demonic power in the world, then, then you have a skewed understanding of the history of this nation. But that notwithstanding, the idea that men can tear something down does not negate the truth that whatever men tear down, God can build back. If God is in it, then it doesn't matter what people destroy. God can put it back together again. Jesus says this building can be destroyed and within three days it will be restored. And it will be restored to a level of greatness, to a level of goodness, to a level of usefulness, to a level of functionality that it never knew before. If we are to be the church that God called us to be, if, 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 if Lent stands for anything, it stands for us recognizing not where we are, not who we are, not what we are, but what we have the potential for becoming. And when we observe reverence for the presence and the power and the protection of God, then it doesn't matter what people tear down. God will build it back up. And if God builds it, God will preserve it. And if God preserves it, then God will empower it. And if God empowers it, there's no force on earth that can destroy it. Paul says that there is nothing not of things in heaven or things in earth or things under the earth. There is no principality. There is no power. There is no demonic power. There's no past. There's no future that can destroy, that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. As we go, we would encourage you to go in that love and to recognize that God is the glue that keeps us together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time of sharing and study. We pray that what has been said and done here has been pleasing in your sight, edifying to your people, uplifting to your holy and righteous name. As your word has gone forth, may it not have just touched heads, but may it have also touched hearts, that a seed might have been planted in our hearing, that will reap a bountiful harvest in our living. Continue to God to bless our community, to bless our state, our nation, truly, dear God, to bless our world. As we deal with the realities of this virus, this pandemic, we recognize, dear God, that ultimate authority rests not with the virus, but ultimate authority rests with you. And so we stand with you. We call upon you. We ask for your healing power in every aspect of our lives, physical, mental, economic, emotional, social. We ask for your healing power to reign in our lives. And we ask it only in the name of your son, Jesus, 
And for his sake we pray. Amen. Thank you for sharing. We pray that this has been a help to you. We'll be back again on Sunday for worship at 8 o'clock and 11 o'clock, Sunday school at 945. God bless you.